This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody, this is Joshua Lewis with The Remnant Radio. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We've got a very exciting episode for you. We're going to be talking about classical Christian thinkers today with Dr. Ken Samples from Reasons.org. But before we get into the show, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Michael. How are you doing today? And tell us a little bit about your week. Uh, I'm doing fantastic. Uh, Week. I mean, it just got started, so I don't know what to say about okay, it. Okay, last week. Give me something. Uh, my son went to took a nap a little late and was cranky. That's about it. That's okay. About hey, so I've got a fun story with my daughter. We posted it on Facebook. Um, we were talking about marriage. We were saying, you know, Ramo, what's going to happen if a boy asks you to marry him? What are you going to say? And she goes, well, if he's a stranger, I will beat him up. And then we all laughed really hard. And then uh, we asked uh, Ramo, what if you know him? Like, what if he's one of your friends, you know, from church or something? And he asks to marry you. And her response was, well, if he says he wants to marry me, I'll tell him I think he's a stranger. So uh, both both <laughs> so situations, up both place, situations yeah. ends up this boy very, is, very clever. is beaten. Um, you you taught her that I take I, it. Yeah. I absolutely did not. No, yeah, you're uh, not a pacifist. We were, we're gonna have to. That'll be another episode. Yeah, that that we'll, we'll have yeah. to. We'll have to become a pacifist on the next episode. But but before we get too far into the dialogue, I would like to introduce everybody to Doctor Ken Samples from Reasons dot org. Uh, Doctor Samples, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, likewise. I am also looking forward to this. Uh, I'm having a hard time picking up your camera and give me one second. It's only live on YouTube. There's never been problems with that before. Here we go. And there it is. Oh, there he is. How are you doing today, Dr. Samples? Let's try again. (laughs) All right. I'm doing great. I uh, just hit the refresh there. It, that's that's a YouTube problem. Hey, so tell us a little bit about yourself and your ministry. Yeah, Reasons to Believe is a science faith organization. It is an old earth creationist viewpoint. Uh, we have uh, five full-time scholars on staff. I'm kind of the oddball in that my training is in philosophy and theology. Um, and I do podcasts, I write books, I write blog articles, and there's just a ton of information on apologetics, particularly science faith apologetics at reasons.org. Okay, so uh, you you mentioned this, I think the last time you were on, you had come on and we talked about the classical forms of apologetics. We will, for those of you who are watching now, we obviously can't put that link here, but uh, it will be linked up right here above this video. If you guys want to go back and watch that, uh, we talked about the cosmological argument. We talked about the, like the moral argument, like the classical forms of apologetics to lead people to the faith. Would you, would you call those evidentialists uh, forms of apologetics? Well, I I think they're both classical and evidentialist uh, approaches. Um, I imagine even a cumulative case person might dabble in that a little bit, but they are different than your 
traditional presuppositionalist approach. Okay, excellent. And then for those of you who are watching uh, and you know nothing about Dr. Samples, he wrote a book. I'm putting the the photo of that up here now so you guys can see what that looks like. Uh, This is Classical Christian Thinkers. Uh, It was a book that was just published recently. I've seen it on his Facebook post a couple times. And uh, this book, if you want to uh, catch this book after uh, this video, go down into the show notes of YouTube and we have the link there for you. Dr. Samples, tell us a little bit about your book and that'll kind of lead us into our discussion today. Yes, um, You know, I've long been concerned that in the evangelical world, we we don't know a lot about how we came to believe what we believe. Mm. You know, for example, with the Trinity, while the Trinity is derived from the Bible, uh, a lot of issues had to be hashed out. Uh, You know, heresies challenged the Trinity, councils defined the three distinct persons, etc., And so I wrote this book because I think evangelicals often don't know a lot about historical theology or church history. I meet people who sometimes convert to Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, and they will sometimes tell me, these are former evangelicals, they'll say, because I thought those branches of Christendom were more anchored into history. So I decided that I wanted to introduce people, provide a a beginner's guide to some of the great Christian thinkers through the centuries, introduce them to their key ideas, talk about some of their major books. And I I tried to do it in such a way that I actually touch on some, some very substantive issues, but it really is still uh, an introductory guide. And so I'm hoping evangelicals will read my book. will learn about some of these thinkers and then maybe take a dive and read the confessions or maybe read Pascal's Pensees or be really bold and read uh, Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologica. So uh, that's the reason why I wrote it. I, I want to help educate my Christian friends on the importance of church history and historical theology. Why do you think that there's such a gap between um Protestant evangelicalism today in the West and historic Christian faith, and that there's such a disconnect of wanting to know where we came from, that, well, what you tell me from the pulpit today is good enough, but is this a historical truth throughout history? Why do you think that that's not valued in the church as much as it used to be? That's a good question. I I, I think at the time of the Reformation, if you look at the four major Protestant bodies that come out of the Reformation, the Lutheran, uh, Reformed, Anglican, we'll call it fourth the Baptist. I think historically there were a lot of roots. I mean, the early Protestants agreed with the great creeds and confessions of classical Christianity. Um, I mean, you look at the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, all of the Protestants affirm those uh, with Catholics, with Orthodox. I think, however, evangelicalism has evolved I think today evangelicalism is less confessional. I think we, of course, have uh, people within evangelicalism who uh, are distant from creeds and confessions. And I even think that the principle of sola scriptura has been so popular and successful that 
uh, scripture is what people want to know. And I, I think sometimes there is maybe the, the lack of appreciation that scripture has to be interpreted. And um, the elements of scripture and its interaction in church history, I think, have kind of fallen on, on hard times. But, you know, I was, a, I was a Catholic. I grew up a Catholic and I left the Catholic Church when I was about 20 years old studying philosophy. I met Walter Martin, who was a top uh, Christian apologist, and he presented some Protestant arguments to me. But I think that the Catholic Church, they lose people out of the bottom. I think evangelicalism loses people out of the top. And I think lots of times evangelicals who know something about philosophy, know something about history, they, they want a more historical, maybe confessional, maybe even a more liturgical faith. And uh, what I like to say in the book is Thomas Aquinas was a Catholic. There's no doubt about it. You'll read his book and you'll disagree with some of what he has to say, but you can't miss Thomas Aquinas. He's too good. He's too articulate. Uh, you know, Augustine, to some degree, was Catholic. But if you don't read Thomas, if you don't read uh, Saint Augustine or Athanasius, boy, these people enrich my faith so much. So I, I want to encourage my evangelical friends to to be Catholic, but with a small C. Yeah, that's good. And and for those who are watching, um, you know, we we acknowledge that most of our following is uh, the evangelical world that is non-confessional. So so those of you who are watching, these phrases are just yeah, confessional odd to you. Out, yeah, yeah, defining. Yeah, so so as we as you're defining these things, um, there are confessions and creeds by which the early church formed around, formulated around, in saying, well, there's some of you in the 300 years after Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection have decided to teach certain things about Christ's identity. Some of you um, have a view that uh, Jesus is uh, the father and then takes his father hat off and then he, then he comes on and he puts his, his son hat off, his son, hat, son hat on, and then takes that off and then his Holy Spirit hat on. And he, he's just one person, but he acts like three people in different scenes and situations. Uh, some of you are teaching that Christ is a created being. He's more of like an angel or a highly exalted created being, but not really God as he's been eternally God, but that he's been brought into existence. And, and these early creeds and confessions are not um, are not uh, unique doctrines that these guys came together and agreed upon. What they were was they went back to the scriptures and studied the scriptures and had a universal agreement of of what the scriptures said, so that they could have defining lines to say uh, the Son is uh, begotten, not made. Uh, he is eternally coexistent with the Father. He is, you know, these these creedal confessions that have come out of that through the, like the Apostles' Creed and then expounded upon in some of these later creeds and confessions. Uh, and, and, you know, like the Heidelberg Catechism, which is like one of my favorites, is like 1600s. It's not like that early. These ones that we're talking about right now are very, very early. And they develop out throughout the histories, you know, the Reformation. They they, they came up with their own catechisms and creeds and confessions and stuff like that. Um, I think the point you're making is that uh, all of the early heresies had to do something with the nature of who Jesus was. Was he fully God? Was he fully man? Was he a bit of both? And then on top Sorry. of that, uh, no, no worries. Uh, and so what they wanted to do was these councils got together and they, they really deliberated what, what, what's the truth here. And, and one of the guys you mentioned earlier, uh, Athanasius was one of the, the big fathers of that time who sort of brought a lot of clarity and did a lot of writing on that particular topic. 
So these creeds were developed to sort of solidify uh, the doctrine of the Trinity. Um, it, because the whole of Scripture can't be shorthanded, like in a paragraph, there were these essential doctrines that needed to be universally accepted in shorthand mm-hmm. that came from Scripture. They're not held as Scripture, but they're just nuggets of what Scripture is. Is that a fair estimation? Yeah, I think it is. Um, you know, I, I, I think that when we look at these creeds, when we look at these confessional statements, we look back to the councils, church was very successful in kind of drawing lines in the sand saying, you know, we, we can't define exactly what the Trinity means, but we can tell you what it doesn't mean. Uh, you know, there are, there's mystery in the Christian faith it relates to the Trinity, the incarnation, but there are heresies that come along, Arianism, uh, various other issues. And I think lots of evangelicals, that's kind of absent from our frame of reference. Or uh, I think that uh, just learning about the stories of Athanasius, Augustine, um, you know, various others, and, and even, though, even though evangelicals are, are largely Protestant in orientation, we often don't know much more about Luther and Calvin. Oh, they, they don't even know the word Protestant comes from, really, by and large, I would imagine. Yeah, the, the word the word Protestant initially meant Protestant. The Luther and those who followed him protested some of the medieval Catholic beliefs and practices, so they were designated as Protestants. Uh, that kind of... Uh, that term kind of defined the third branch of Christendom. And uh, I wish the Protestants had been more unified personally. I wish that Luther and others had hammered out their differences and had greater unity. But I tend to be quite an ecumenical person, and I like to emphasize where people have common ground. But that's the origin of the word Protestant, a Protestant. So go, go ahead. Well, I was going to say we, you know, there's a million questions I would love to ask you offline, um, but but I want to pull out some of the content from your book, and so I was I was hoping maybe you could uh, give us some of the greatest contributions of some of these early guys, specifically um, Athanasius, uh, and, and you could tell me exactly what he was contributing and why why his writings were so prolific or, or passed around, and, and why we have them today as as uh, a great. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. I think Athanasius is one of the most interesting, exciting, intriguing persons in church history. He lives in the fourth century. He's at the Council of Nicaea in 325. Doesn't have a vote. He's there with Bishop Alexander, um, and the Arian heresy breaks out. The Arian heresy was. Uh, developed by Arius of Alexandria. This is all in the eastern part of Christendom. Uh, Arius said that Jesus was um, a high-esteemed creature of God, uh, but Jesus was not fully God. And so the Council of Nicaea condemned the Nicene heresy, said, no, Jesus the Son is equal with the Father. But unfortunately, that heresy didn't die out. Uh, Athanasius had to battle it for 50 years. And in fact, there were times where other bishops uh, accepted it and put pressure on Athanasius. So he was exiled five times. Uh, And this Arian idea is very similar to the Christology that Jehovah's Witnesses affirm. I actually use some of of Athanasius' arguments when I talk with Jehovah's Witnesses. 
So Athanasius battled Arianism. He developed biblical arguments against it. And ultimately, I think Nicene Orthodoxy was victorious over Arianism, largely because of this Egyptian thinker called Athanasius. And in fact, I was baptized at St. Athanasius Parish uh, Catholic Church here in Southern California way back in the 60s. And on the front door in Latin of our of our parish, it said Athanasius contra mundum, which in Latin is Athanasius against the world. The story is that at a critical point, when it looked like Christendom was moving toward the Arian heresy, some of the Arian bishops taunted Athanasius and said, Athanasius, don't you know the whole world's against you? And Athanasius very quietly and calmly said, is the world against Athanasius? then it's Athanasius against the world. I think the great lesson of Athanasius is that when it comes to essential Christian doctrine, Christians cannot back down. Athanasius was a first-rate theologian. He was a first-rate apologist. In fact, um, in his book on the Incarnation, C.S. Lewis wrote a preface to it. And Lewis said that when he read uh, Athanasius's book, he said, I knew that I was reading a theological masterpiece. Hmm. So it's, it's a great text by, by, I think, the most universally respected theologian outside of the apostles. Uh, Athanasius is a saint in the Orthodox tradition, in the Catholic tradition, and Protestants revere him very significantly. So you don't want to miss his story. You don't want to miss the understanding of the, the back and forth between Nicene Orthodoxy and Arianism. And you don't want to miss his book. On the Incarnation is a profound theological text. You'll have to explain to me, how is it that somebody who uh, was on the outs, I mean, everybody was against him, and you said on five occasions he was, he was ousted, right? He was exiled. Uh, how is it that he managed to turn the tide? Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a great question. You know, a lot of people think that Arianism came up, the Nicene Council solved it, and everything went back to normal. But that's not the case. Um, there was a, a lot of division going on because, uh, you know, Constantine had, had affirmed Nicene Orthodoxy, had put the church in a very advantageous position, but there were still a lot of theological ideas floating around, and there was concern that if, that if uh, Christian theology had had this, uh, this heresy, that it would divide the Roman Empire. So there's a lot of politics going on in this mm. context. It's not purely a theological doctrinal debate, but Athanasius was tenacious by the way, he was Egyptian, so he had dark skin. He was very short, and people who didn't like him or didn't like his position would often call him names. Uh, but Athanasius is one of the great heroes of our faith. Um, I think if uh, I think if the church had embraced Arianism, historic Christianity would have been lost. Hmm. So, 
when when we talk about these guys, uh, you you mentioned multiple generations of theologians in your book. You've talked about you know Athanasius, Thomas Aquinas, who came much later. Uh, after that, I mean, you've even got you've got uh, John Calvin, and then after that, you've got even got like C.S. Lewis. I mean, we're spanning hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, between some of these uh, characters. Uh, why did you feel uh, the ne- the necessity to not just Talk about early church fathers or uh, late great thinkers, but why? Why the the span of time? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Um, I think a couple reasons. Number one, these are these are some of my favorites. I mean, I look at them. I, I did three church fathers: Irenaeus, Athanasius, Augustine. I then did two medieval Christian Catholic thinkers: Anselm and Aquinas. I then moved to the two most important reformers. Luther and Calvin. Pascal's life is at the time of the scientific revolution in the 17th century. And then I give a modern thinker, C.S. Lewis. But remember, Lewis is a, he is a uh, medieval Renaissance scholar. He's very classical. I love Lewis when he says, for every modern book you read, read two old books. Uh, I wrote about these nine. One, because I like baseball and I wanted to have a, a lineup of nine. I wrote about them because I, I like them. I see them as mentors. I see them as broken, fallen, forgiven sinners mm. who I can learn from. And I also wanted to give somewhat of a perspective of the breadth of Christian history. So some of them are more Eastern, probably more popular among the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Most of them are Western. Some of them are Catholic. Some are Protestant. But I wanted to kind of give a a running introduction to nine thinkers that I think are not only really good at theology, but often they're very good at philosophy and Christian apologetic ideas. I think all of them, I mean, we typically think of Luther and Calvin as being theologians proper, but Luther and Calvin, their theological ideas have philosophical and apologetic implications. So I wanted to give them kind of a a breadth of perspective of some of these truly extraordinary Christian thinkers. Okay, so let's let's talk about. I mean, probably because I love him a lot, but let's talk about Thomas Aquinas. Um, let's let's talk about uh, his um, his effect on the church and what we have from him today. Give give a brief history for those who might not even know who he is. Yeah, uh, Thomas Aquinas is born in the High Middle Ages. Uh, 1225, dies in 1274. That's only 49 years. I don't know how he accomplished so much in such a short period. Well, maybe no TV, maybe no YouTube. (laughs) That might do it. Thomas was uh, born in Italy and uh, at a very young age, he, in fact, he was born in a castle. He was uh, taught in one of the great um, monasteries there in the middle ages, studied at the university of Paris Uh, Thomas is considered, he may have some debate with Augustine, but Thomas is considered the most influential Roman Catholic thinker. Uh, He is a a saint in that tradition. He wrote two of the most monumental uh, texts in Christian history, Summa Theologica, Summa Contra Gentilis. Summa is like a manual, uh, if you will. Um, Thomas, of course, is widely known for his five ways, his arguments for God's existence. He is also well known for 
his synthesis, his Christian Aristotelian synthesis. In the 13th century, people discovered the writings of Aristotle once again. Muslim authors were reading Aristotle and trying to craft a a Aristotelian Arabic uh, presentation. And um, Thomas is well known for taking some of the key ideas from Aristotle, uh, moving things out that he didn't agree with, that he didn't think were biblical or in accord with Christianity. And um, I think, uh, quite candidly, I think Thomas was the brightest mind Christendom ever produced. And there are going to be things you'll read from a Protestant point of view. You'll differ with his view of the sacraments. You'll differ with his view of the authority uh, of the church. But he has a very high view of Scripture. In fact, Thomas always wanted to be called a a teacher of Scripture. And uh, I find, even when I disagree with him, I find him to be fair-minded, careful. He exhibits it, what I think, what I call the golden rule of apologetics. If you read Summa Theologica, he considers all of the potential objections to his point of view. He states them accurately and carefully. Um, I think Thomas was masterful. And even though I'm a Protestant, and I'm going to differ with him at some important places, I... um, I think he was an extraordinary scholar, and I highly recommend that people wrestle with with his ideas. What were some of the things? So, when you say he he um, learned a lot from Aristotle, and Aristotle was sort of the the uh, there was a resurgence of of popularity there. Um, would that be considered Neoplatonism? Is there a difference between the two? Well, Neoplatonism is the issue that's brought up with Saint Augustine in the fourth and fifth century. Um, with, Aris, with with Thomas, it is Aristotle. It is the Aristotelian tradition. And, and what, uh, what would you say he, he brought in from that? Yeah, very, very good. Well, look, there are things in Aristotle that are not Christian, that are not biblical. Aristotle, for example, thought the universe was eternal. Uh, Aristotle didn't think that human beings had an eternal soul. Uh, Aristotle didn't have a, a grasp of original sin. So there are clearly things in the Aristotelian tradition that Thomas is going to have a problem with. But what Thomas did is he took Thomas Aquinas's categories, he took some of his key ideas, and he pitched a Christian perspective. Now, I think it's important to appreciate this. Sometimes people criticize Thomas and say, he just baptized Aristotle's God. That's not true. Thomas is much more sophisticated than that. He calls calls Aristotle the philosopher, but he actually quotes uh, St. Augustine more. He He calls Augustine the theologian, and he quotes Scripture enormously. So, you know, again, Protestants are probably going to find places where they'll push back but uh, there are a good number of Protestants today who have adopted Thomism, who have adopted Thomas's basic philosophical categories. Uh, for example, he's well known not only for the five proofs for God's existence, but he's also well known for his idea that all language about God is analogical. It's not univocal. So we talk about my father, my earthly father and heavenly father. 
that word is not being used univocally, neither is it being used equivocally, it's used analogically. Um, he's also uh, known for uh, his idea of divine simplicity, that God is not a being like other beings, God is being itself. And so there are many areas that Thomas uh, casts a big shadow. And uh, again, I think people kind of overstate uh, his Aristotelianism. I think he's very Augustinian. And, and by the way, I can show you some passages in Thomas that would make you think he held something like Sola Scriptura. Yeah. Uh, he was a lover of Scripture, and uh, he, of course, lived before the Protestant Reformation. Uh, so justification, scripture tradition, those are issues that come later. But um, I think he's an extraordinary author, not easy to read. Um, he, he was a genius. And if you're going to read the Summas, you got to be on top of your game. But, uh, you know, to ignore him, I think, makes you a lesser Christian, particularly if you're interested in theology, philosophy, and apologetics. So let's say one of our our viewers was going to try to tackle Summa Theologica, which is not like an easy read. I tried to read it. I couldn't get it. Um, is there a great guide that could help you in understanding that? Yes, yes there are. Uh, and by the way, Thomas also write, wrote a Summa of the Summa. That is his small Summa. He was <laughs> his, merciful. Easy reader he was version. The Reader's Digest. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it, it is a little bit more introductory. But remember, he's Thomas Aquinas, so even the Summa of the Summa uh, assumes a whole lot. There, there are some very good guides. Uh, Peter Kreeft, for example, a Catholic thinker, has done some uh, writings where he borrows from the Summa. Uh, Norman Geisler, evangelical Protestant, is a Thomist, and he has a book on Thomas Aquinas. Uh, there are some great books out there on Thomas. G.K. Chesterton wrote a book on him. There's a Catholic philosopher in my area here in Pasadena, uh, a man named Fazer, who's written on Thomas. And um, in my book, I give you the best sources on him, and I invite you to, you know, to 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 dive in. Be, be bold. Be risky. Just take a dive into Thomas, and uh, I think you'll be better that you've done it. Yeah, we, I think we find, uh, and I see this about scripture, but I think this is very applicable when it comes to theological uh, conversations in general. Uh, scripture, start with that example first, I tell people is uh, like learning a different language, right? You don't go and, and hear a few words and then run to a dictionary and then read those words. You, you go into a culture, you immerse yourself. I mean, I took Spanish for two years and I can order a burrito and ask someone where to use the bathroom and that's all I've got. Uh, but, uh, my missionary friends, they spend two years in Mexico completely immersed in the language and they come out learning how to speak and engage and talk with these people. Now, uh, I say that about scripture. If you want to know scripture, it's about reading quantity, right? It's not about getting lost in the, uh, why did Zephora use a foreskin, or, you know, use the flint knife to cut off the foreskin of the child and then put the, the you know, the foreskin on, on someone's feet so that, that he wouldn't kill Moses. Like th this is a random story. And if you just stop there because you don't understand it, you'll never finish the Bible because there's a lot of weird stuff in there. But if you find that you, you read 
copious amounts of scripture, scripture actually interprets scripture. So you actually will understand what things are saying. So it's the same thing, I think, with these theological uh, documents. You've got to be able to read them and reread them. I, I'm an audio listener, so I listen to these audiobooks over and over and over again uh, uh, because that that helps me understand. I, I'm not a very good um, – I, I don't re- retain what I read very well. Um, yeah, no, well said. I, I The goal in me writing my book was, you know, to, to really give a beginner's guide, to, to ease people into some of these individuals, to highlight – their key theological, philosophical, apologetic contributions, and then to encourage people to, to, to do a little bit of reading. I mean, Thomas Aquinas is a person you'll want to study the rest of your life. Augustine wrote five million words. Uh, I haven't made my way through all of that material. But the, these, are, these are really cherished Christian thinkers. So- um, for for those who are who are watching that might be like well Thomas Aquinas was catholic or some of these people are are catholic they have they have these deceptive thoughts they have these deceptive doctrines why why listen to these thinkers to reform our theology it, it would be important to remember guys like Paul who go to uh, Athens, right? And they're preaching on Mars Hill and they're quoting pagan philosophers and poets. We're actually talking about someone who's much closer to us in our reasoning and rationale of a monotheistic triune God. Um, and, and even early on talked about just, you know, he might have different views of justification and those kinds of things. But we have, we have Paul directly quoting Zeus, uh, in, in his apologetic to the, to the people of Athens, uh, and to be able to use his reasoning reasoning and logic to make points. I mean, you're saying like Thomas Aquinas, it would be the same reason we would read Jordan Peterson. He's a beautiful mind. He's a, he's a deep thinker. And if we would get around that, we can maybe use those insights to help communicate the gospel. Would you say that that's probably a fair point to disarming conversations towards uh, Thomas Aquinas and other of these Catholic thinkers? Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the thing to remember, you're never going to agree with all these people. Right. Uh, all of these thinkers don't even agree with each other at various points. But um, I think Thomas was one of the brightest bulbs in the history of Western civilization. I think uh, living today, being a Christian apologist myself, I want to benefit from all of those thoughtful people. I want to utilize their ideas. I want to argue with them. I want to go back and forth with them. And uh, I have to say, um, these men and their lives, they inspire me. They speak to me. They were bookish people. They were students, uh, thoughtful people. And um, I just feel like I'm, I'm a beneficiary. And with all due respect to the Roman Catholic tradition and to the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Thomas doesn't belong exclusively to the Catholic Church. He belongs to Christendom. Yeah. And many of us have, have taken uh, and have come to appreciate him as we have others. It's like the uh, the gifts of God that were given to the church in Ephesians 4, talking about apostles and prophets. These, these men were gifts that were given to God's church for the equipping of his church, his unified, global, as, as the creeds would say, Catholic church, the one universal church. Um, uh, that, that kind of leads us to maybe our next our next piece of discussion on the Reformation, just kind of tracking through these different places in history. Uh, let's camp out over that Reformation. Why Martin Luther and John Calvin? I mean, obviously, John Calvin, 
and Martin Luther are are, are pretty uh, pretty influential uh, figures. Yes. If you're Protestant, you've been influenced, whether you know it or not. Oh yeah. When, before we go quite there, I think uh, so. What happens commonly with evangelical Protestants is um, it, it's so quick, so quick to to carte blanche. Say if it's Catholic, it's non-Christian. Carte blanche. Good, good word. Yeah, Keep going. You. Sorry, yeah. sorry. I just, I just want to. Wait, come on, like, give me some sort of like <laughs> sound effect. What kind of with sound that. effect? Okay. Yeah, but I mean, that's true. Yeah. They, they sort of like write it off. Carte blanche. I'm there. I did it again. Um, like that. Thank you. Applause. Yeah. There you go. I, actually, that's more for him because everything he's saying is actually like applause worthy. <laughs> I'm not saying. I, if anything, the questions I'm asking are betraying my level of knowledge. So, no. um, and what you're, I, I'm. Here's a question I'm, I might be asking in this. Didn't I think it was Origen who said all truth is God's truth? Am I getting that right? Uh, yeah. And that's sort of what you're saying here is is you're not saying that that everything Thomas Aquinas said was Christian uh, or like what you would agree with today as a, a Protestant, but a lot of what he said is Christian, and and he doesn't you don't toss him out just because he's Catholic. You wouldn't say that every Catholic is not a Christian, um, and neither should we today. That's exactly right. I mean, re- remember that, uh, I'll give you a quick little story. John Calvin, who, by the way, was a, a humanist, not in the secular idea, but he was a humanist in that he loved classical literature. He loved reading people like Seneca and others. Calvin quotes uh, Luther a hundred times, approximately. He quotes Thomas Aquinas a hundred times. He quotes St. Augustine 4,200 times. So here's, why would Calvin do something like that? I, I think clearly because Calvin was trying to make the case that the best in Protestant theology was agreed upon with the best in the Catholic side. That's a good point. And I think that uh, you're going to differ with uh, Augustine. You're going to differ with Thomas Aquinas if you're a Protestant. But there's an enormous amount of great uh, truth. Uh, I think if you read the Nicene Creed, I mean, you know, when I talk to people about the Catholic-Protestant debate, I say, I I want you to do two things. I want you to read with me the Nicene Creed. And I ask them, how big a slice of Christianity is the Nicene Creed? Then I say, now, I also want you to read the statements from the Council of Trent that were very uh, critical, even curses about the Protestant view. And I want you to weigh both of those when you come to your evaluation of Catholicism. But remember, Augustine lived 1,600 years ago. Um, Cal- uh, Thomas Aquinas lived 750 years ago. They lived prior to the Protestant Reformation. But both of those thinkers influenced Luther and Calvin. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a, you know, we don't, uh, we don't live in the past, but the past lives in us. So here's, here's a thought. Um, when, we, when we look at these thinkers, and even to know their playbook, I have, a, I have a really good friend who has come on and done systematic theology with me. His name is Michael Mitchell. Again, link up in the top. Uh, phenomenal piece. We've, we've gone through systematic theology, talked about all of this. And one of the things he had said in that, in those recordings was that uh, he loves reading Freud and Nietzsche. 
um, if for nothing less than mental sparring partners and to understand the world's r- framework and reference so that he can, he can apply an apologetic to their framework and to understand these historic arguments. If you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, you're talking to a Mormon, you're talking to a, a, a Roman, and I'm not putting all these people in the same camp. So again, I want to be very, very careful. You know, uh, you're, you're talking to a, a, a oneness Pentecostal, you're talking to all of these different groups that believe different things about the Trinity, that believe different things about Christ. Christ, when you study church history and the creeds and confessions throughout history, you come with a better approach to defend the faith with these people because these are arguments that happened 3,000 years ago and the best minds in all of history tackled these things for you and you can use their cliff notes when talking to people. So it's just, it's just a, it's poor reasoning to say that we shouldn't read these Catholic thinkers. We need to get behind their head and their lens and understand what they're saying so that we can reach people in those shoes. No, and, and I think you hit on it earlier. There's no way to know what, why we believe what we believe today without studying some of these guys because they do live in us today. Whether we may not live in the past, they live in us. Oh, yeah. Um, it's something that it was, uh, I, I think what happens in, I don't know why this is the case, but there is sort of a, uh, a, um, I don't know. It's not ethnocentrism, but a a what do you call for you know sort of viewing everything beyond the modern era, uh, you know, not rational and you know uh, mythic and you know they just believe anything kind of thing. Uh, we, there's definitely this this approach that anything that's older than two hundred years is um, it, 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 anything prior tradition. to the French Enlightenment. It's, yeah. it's just nonsense. That's sort of the, the take. And so we don't think we need to read anything beyond that because these guys weren't real thinkers. I don't even know if it's today, if it's that those things are, I don't, I don't think people think those things are stupid. Like if you were to talk to someone about, you know, uh, Martin Luther, go to a Protestant church and say, who is Martin Luther? Uh, real cool guy. He, he, he's, he made Christians Christians and they're not Catholic anymore. Like that's, that's going to be yeah. your, your rough, you know, ballpark answer. Well, I mean, when it comes to Antonician fathers, I feel like those are incredibly unpopular and not well known. I mean, oh, yeah. uh, you know, two of the guys you've got in your book, Irenaeus and, and, uh, Athanasius. I mean, nobody even knows who they are. No clue. Not nobody, but a lot of your typical evangelical churchgoer. But the thing is, is if the average churchgoer even knew who they were, they would be properly able to define what the Trinity is. And again, there are statistics by Barna out there by the droves. Catholics understand the Trinity better than evangelicals. Period. I think I, one of our viewers just gave me the term I needed, modern arrogance. <laughs> I think that's right. <laughs> that's it. Yes. Well, and uh, Tell me your take on that. What do you think that is? Yeah. Um, C.S. Lewis used to talk about what he called chronological snobbery. that's great chronological snobbery is essentially the idea that everything today is always superior to anything in the past and uh, you know a big part of his scholarly career was to poke holes in that idea to get to get people at oxford to think about the renaissance uh, to to think about uh the middle ages and i think uh, I'll, i'll go on the other side of the coin I don't think anybody living today is in the category of St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or Luther or Calvin. Uh, there are some very bright people uh, living today, and I've learned from them and I respect them. But to have the kind of influence that some of these thinkers has had is truly extraordinary. I mean, nobody living today has transformed Western civilization. But Augustine did. Um, 
Aquinas did, hmm. Luther and Calvin did. I think there's much to, to, to be learned in the past. Of course, we live at a time, I mean, gosh, think about it. Uh, Thomas died at 49 years old. Pascal died at 39 years old. Uh, you know, Luther was, I think, uh, uh, sick in his early 60s. Calvin died at 55. Boy, today we have technology, we have medicine, we have all of these great benefits, but I don't think we're any wiser than people in the past. And uh, I don't want my evangelical friends to think that Christianity is merely, is only a relationship between them and God. I want them to realize that historic Christianity is a movement that has transformed the world. And um, I don't want uh, them to stop reading scripture. I don't want them to put these others' writings before God's word. Uh, I want them to, to master uh, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. But remember that, uh, that Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin and others, they, uh, they love scripture. And uh, they loved God's church and... Uh, I, I, again, want my evangelical brothers to appreciate that church history also belongs to us so that we can kind of rebuild evangelicalism. I, I'm, a, I'm a little concerned that it, it, it's showing a lot of breakdown. And uh, we, we talk about I that think, on the show a lot. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah. Very good. I was looking at Jude just now on my, on my, on my phone, double checking uh, Jude 1 3 that talks about the faith that was once and for all passed down to the saints. And there is this intentional ignorance of the faith being passed down. Uh, and that, that there are people who went before us who understood the scriptures, wrestled with the scriptures, um, fought theological giants, defeated uh, the foe uh, of false doctrine that came in through a misunderstanding of scripture, and that we as believers would do great, uh, I think a, a great deal of, the falling away that's going to happen in the eschaton and towards the end, uh, that as things are wrapping up, there's going to be a great falling away and there's going to be great deception uh, and people are going to be confused and not understand. And I think those who have looked back to the historic faith and have been able to root things and saying, I know this is true, not because the guy in the pulpit said it, but because he said it, he said it, he said it, he said it, and just go back through, through history, all the way to back to Christ, back to the apostles, and say uh, these things were contended. They fought for this faith, and they, it was delivered to me through this lineage of saints, um, opposed to just a, a new, now, fresh word uh, that can be interpreted any way uh, that we want, uh, which is What's highly it? problematic. Yeah, pursuing teachers that that. Uh suit our own desires. Yeah. I mean, that's, we, we, we live in an age where you can literally acquire any teacher you want instantly. Mm-hmm. That, that'll tell you exactly what you want to believe rather than what the scriptures teach you. Um, it, it's actually, I mean, the information age in some sense is actually scary because there's so much out there. It's like, how do I filter? Through? Oh yeah. I read a blog article that said the church fathers were a bunch of tradition. So I'm going to, the, word I, the tradition, very first thing that I read, so I'm yeah. not going to believe that. The word tradition is even a buzzword of uh, Pharisaic. Yeah. Like you use the word tradition and, and no, no, that's pharisaical. We don't want to be religious. I yeah. mean, there's sort of this anti-tradition uh, thing. And because it, it, again, it's that, that sort of anti-Catholic. Um, We've got about 15 minutes left in the program. Let's let's uh, try to get Pascal if we can. And then maybe C.S. Lewis a little bit if we have the time. I'm actually not familiar with Pascal 
at all. All I know is his wager. There you That's go. it. <laughs> yeah, which so, is great. I loved it when I was a, a college student learning about that. But you can so tell us, tell us about yeah, enlighten us about yeah, very exciting, very exciting, intriguing person, born in France, uh, the year sixteen twenty three. Um, his father is the treasurer for the French government. Um, Blaise is uh, deeply intellectual. He develops theories of probability theory. He develops arguments in the area of mathematics. In the, in the middle of the 1600s, he's up late with his dad counting taxes. And he says, you know, if a clock can count the hours, I should be able to create a machine that will calculate money. Hmm. He developed a, a calculating machine in the 1600s that people today who are experts in technology say was the first step toward the computer. Mm. First algorithm. This guy was so smart. Uh, He was a founding father of the scientific revolution. He was a physicist, expert in the area of pressure. In fact, even today, they measure pressure and they use the term Pascal. Um, So he was a mathematician. He was a a physicist. He was a logician, uh, kind of grew up in a nominal Catholic family. In his early 30s, he was crossing the river sign, and uh, he had a powerful religious experience. He never talked about it much, but he wrote about it and sewed it into his clothing. It's called the Night of Fire, where apparently he had some kind of vision of Jesus. Hmm. His life was turned upside down. He began writing uh, Christian apologetic material. In fact, he has a book called The Pensees. French, that means reflections or thoughts. He never completed it. So it's largely a group of his notes, his outlines, and things of that nature. I read it every year. It is, it is an amazing text. I think Pascal is one of the most intuitive Christian thinkers around. Um, and, and again, um, he was critical of some of the Catholic ideas, but uh, there is a whole lot more to Pascal than merely the wager. And often people misunderstand the wager. So give us give us an understanding of Pascal's wager, if you will. Well, and and where, also, where can I find that uh, the story of his uh, sort of visionary experience? Because I would love to have that in my <laughs> my arsenal in our in our continuationist yeah. arsenal yeah. of experiences. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you can pick up his book, Ponce's, uh, You know, um, Penguin Classic. It's a paperback. Uh, it's it's always a, a top seller. Uh, but let me tell you about a little bit about the wager. So. So Pascal has a lot of secular friends. I mean, he knows Descartes. He knows all of these philosophers because his dad is wealthy. By the way, Pascal was homeschooled. He never went to school. His father taught him. Um, And Pascal had a lot of secular friends. So the two options at the time in 17th century France were either Catholic Christianity or atheism. And Pascal had a lot of friends that were in the middle. They were agnostic. They weren't atheists, but neither were they Christian. So Pascal intended the wager not as an independent argument for God's existence. He meant it as a provocative cost-benefit analysis. He he essentially (laughs) meant it this way. What if there is life after death? What are your potential options in life after death? 
What do you what do you gain or lose by believing? What do you gain or lose by not believing? He never intended it for for a, a truly secular audience. Uh, it had a it had a particular context. Pascal, by the way, also talked about the resurrection, fulfilled prophecy, the emergence of the church. Um, there is a lot more to that kind of context. And you know what? I think that as a cost-benefit analysis, kind of a shot across the bow to get people thinking about the deeper questions of life, because in Pascal's time, they figured, look, uh, these, these issues are too complex. I can't figure them out. Why should I bother? Why not drink wine and have fun? Pascal was trying to use the wager as a saying, look, it is, it is a gamble. You are engaging in a gamble. And what are the potential uh, benefits? And by the way, this is the same guy that develops probability theory. I mean, Bayesian theory today has its roots in a Christian thinker, Blaise Pascal. Is that so, law of large numbers? Isn't that him? Say again? The law of large numbers. Isn't that also him? That you use that in, uh, in statistics and probabilities? Yes, he, he he is one of the early writers in statistical and probability theory. Hmm. So, and, and I, I, it seems as if I'm hearing this over and over with with these guys. These were not just Christians who were Christian thinkers. These were just thinkers who got saved. I mean, I've read uh, Martin Luther's biography by Metaxas. I've done, uh, you know, the the Calvin's Institutes. These guys were lawyers. These guys were were great thinkers of their day, ahead of their class, bright minds who just happened to get saved. And, and if you're going to go with Calvin's opinion didn't happen to get saved was selected to be saved. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't want to misquote him, but, but, but you, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, semantics aside, uh, these are, these are just brilliant men. And it sounds like Pascal is in that category. And I, I know uh, quite a bit about C.S. Lewis in the same regard. These are just brilliant man before he was saved. And then when he got saved, it was just a, a reckoning for the kingdom of darkness. Would, would, would you say that that seems to be uh, consistently true? Yes. I mean, Pascal has sometimes been called the first modern man. I mean, he thinks he thinks like people in the modern world. Mm. Uh, he doesn't think like people in the Renaissance medieval world. Um, C.S. Lewis, uh, again, um, extraordinary person in getting people to, to think about Christianity as potentially the true myth. That is, you have all of these mythologies that are pointing and Tolkien and Lewis come along and, and tell the story that there is a myth that actually happened in time and space. It's called the Incarnation. So these are, these are thinkers that uh, I think uh, we can benefit so much from. And all of them are exactly as you say. They were deeply Christian. But these are men who use their mind to love God and to challenge uh, the various worldviews and philosophies of the day. So um, you may not you may not always agree with them. You're going to disagree with them, but don't miss them. Don't yeah. don't, uh, don't walk through your life and, and not benefit from them. That's that's one thing that I I really appreciate about C.S. Lewis is is he we're talking about his his early salvation and those kinds of things. He he became a theist before he became a Christian. And, and he's believing in, in theism. There is a God, but what God is he? And, and studying Buddhism and Christianity and trying to figure out 
where where does this land? And I don't know if it was Tolkien. It was one of his his Christian friends who was trying to trying to pull him in. Uh, but they were like, yeah, no, no, it was an atheist friend. That's right. I remember completely atheist. And he goes, well, if you're going to believe any of these faiths, believe the one that left footmarks, like footprints in the sand. Like we have evidence for Christ. So if you're going to believe any of these gods, if you're going to come to theistic reasoning, well, then you should believe in the God that left a mark. Um, and that's, that's what led him. He's like, well, if this complete atheist can see proof that Christ existed, certainly, certainly this has got to be it. And then that's when he went down the rabbit trail of Christianity. Um, uh, what 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 implications? Call Christianity a rabbit trail for C.S. Lewis. Well, it was, was <laughs> no, it not? I, I mean, like, like he's it's got just all, ironic is all. Uh, well, it, it became his rabbit trail. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, It became his trail for sure. But like, it it is early onset. I mean, this guy was just a was a great thinker. I mean, he was he was a brilliant man who who studied the literature and and was fascinated by these things and thought they were you know thought Christianity was silly. But he found that his poets that he loved the most, the people he loved to read the most, were theists. When he even he even wrote his own. Uh, poet, poetic work, I guess. Till we have faces, is that mm-hmm. that's his? Uh, I don't know what you call it, a contribution to Greek uh, myth. Yeah, no, he's got he's got some phenomenal. It, neither here nor there. This the uh, uh, his his uh, his. Con- I'm, I'm completely lost train of thought. Um, uh, uh, I, I do that to you a, all the time. Let's a doctor talk. Yeah, here. So tell us tell <laughs> us about uh, his his major contributions to Christianity. C.S. Lewis. Yeah, I, you know, Owen Barfield was one of Lewis's close friends. He was part of the Inklings. This was that literary group that met at oh, right. uh, pub outside of Oxford. I, I was there last summer, and I went into the pub, and I, I was kind of touching the wall, hoping the magic would uh, jump mm-hmm. onto me as a writer. So your doctor and a time traveler. There were three C.S. Lewis's. He said there is the children's author of the Chronicles of Narnia, which, by the way, have sold over 100 million copies worldwide. He said there was a second C.S. Lewis. It was the lay theologian Christian apologist who wrote books like Mere Christianity, The Problem of Pain and Miracles. Then he said there was a third C.S. Lewis. That was the literary critic who was a scholar of, of medieval and Renaissance literature. Lewis was an amazingly interesting person. He's born in 1898. And the 50 years leading up to his birth is a very secular period. I mean, that's the period in which Marx has his communist manifesto, followed by Darwin's origin of the species, followed by Nietzsche's The Gay Science, where he proclaims God is dead, uh, followed by various other people. So Lewis lives in an extremely secular period, and it influences him. But ultimately, Lewis's conversion, he is in the First World War, he's wounded, Uh, he gives talks on the BBC during World War II. Uh, Lewis begins to critique that secular mindset, and um, I think he's the most influential Christian thinker of the 20th century. And I'll, I'll tell you what, I meet people all the time. And they've only read one part of Lewis. I meet a lot of people who've only read his literature, maybe the Chronicles of Narnia, the space trilogies. I meet other people, probably a bit more like me, who've just, you know, read his apologetic material. But this guy was a comprehensive thinker. And, you know, the book Mere Christianity has been voted the most important Christian book of the 20th century. Hmm. Um you can disagree with Lewis. He didn't hold to biblical inerrancy. 
probably held a, a view of creation that was somewhat like theistic evolution. To, to appreciate Lewis doesn't mean you have to agree with everything he said, but I can't think of a, a person who's had more of an impact on the idea of, of practical everyday Christian apologetics. I mean, his argument about Jesus, is he a legend? Is he a liar, lunatic, Lord? His critique of uh, the argument for reason that if, if, our, if our minds and brains have been the product of blind mechanistic natural processes, you can't trust them. His moral argument. Um, I, I think that Lewis is really an amazing author, an, an amazing uh, individual. And uh, I find him to be very inspiring. You know, he wasn't a perfect person. He struggled. And, and that's the way it is with all nine of these guys. They have warts. I mean, Luther had problems. Calvin had problems. They all have problems, just like you and I are broken people just as you and I struggle to live the Christian life. But the more I've read them, the more I've studied them, the more I'm inspired by them. And uh, Lewis is definitely one of my favorites. Excellent. Hey, so we have got to wrap up this video. We have only got a few more minutes, but before we wrap up, I want to give you a second to kind of plug your ministry. How do people have you come out to their church and speak, uh, come to conferences? They want to read your book, give them all of those uh, those those avenues to you. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a word. Yeah. Thank you very much. I, I want to thank you for the stimulating conversation and for the kind invitation to come on and talk about these uh, thinkers. You know, Reasons to Believe, I think, is a very important apologetic organization. Today, science, I think, has a privileged position in our culture. I think people tend to look at science as, as giving you an objective truth that maybe other fields don't quite have. Of course, I would argue that there are limitations to science. Science can't speak to, to beauty. It can't speak to moral goodness. Uh, and there are many suppositions in science that are philosophical and theological in nature. But what I really like about the organization that I work for is we believe in the two books. We believe in the book of scripture and the book of nature. Uh, Taking this from the Belgic Confession, for example, Article 2, I think Reasons to Believe really tries to show people that, um, that science, is, science and faith are not enemies, they're allies. You can go on to reasons.org, lots of books, lots of articles. I have a blog called Reflections, naming it after Pascal's wonderful pensées. So lots of information there. You may not always agree with us, but I think you'll be stimulated and I think you'll be intrigued. That's good stuff. And, and for those of you who are watching the program live or otherwise, you can get the link for this book, The uh, the Classical Christian Thinkers, where uh, Dr. Ken Samples covers all of what we've talked about and much more in the show notes below. Uh, just go scroll down under this video in the description. You will find uh, that link for the Amazon book. Um Senor, anything that we need to cover before we, we sign off? No, it's just too short, honestly. I, there's a lot of other questions I'd love to ask you. And so I, I'm super thankful that you gave us the time to do this and, and just honored to have you on here. So thank yeah. you. 
That's an honor, Dr. Samples. Thank you for coming. Uh, for those of you who are new to Remnant Radio, you can check us out on our website, theremnantradio.com. You can check us out on Facebook, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Uh, we're here on YouTube locally. All of the content gets to YouTube first. Subscribe there. Ring the bell so that when we go live, you can watch it. Uh, otherwise, if you feel so blessed by this ministry and you feel like you should donate as to keep this content going, uh, you can go do that at our website, theremnantradio.com. We are going to be moving into a new studio very, very soon. Uh, more about that in new episodes. So you guys stay tuned if you want to you catch some of that. Uh, be blessed, and we'll see you next week, Monday, 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. Have a good one. I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.